Our passage this morning is 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we're going to be reading verses 1 through 13. It's 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 13, and it says this, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up, puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Verse 8, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. May God bless the reading of his word. Now, last week we covered the very unremarkable and uncontroversial topic of gender roles in the church. We had a great time doing it, didn't we? We said that the church needs a realignment. Christ church is not to look like the world outside. It shouldn't look like it. It was saved from that. In many ways, the church should look rather opposite the direction that the world outside is going. If it's true that in Genesis 3, humanity departed from God's way of doing things to go its own way. And if it's also true that Jesus came to rescue people from that and bring them back to right relationship with their maker, well, then the church is a realignment with what God intended from the very beginning. That's what the church is. So the church doesn't worry about being on this side or that side of history. It doesn't care what's popular or what's not. Before and above anything else, the church wants to be what God wants it to be. And it knows that what God wants it to be is the very best way to be. And so week after week, the church of God searches what God has revealed in his word and seeks to be continually brought back and realigned to that word. And that means that we can never get so comfortable with the way that we've always done it that we're unwilling to allow God's unchangeable word to mold us, shape us, transform us into the people in the church that God has called us to be. And that's what I want to call us to this morning. I would like to ask that we humble ourselves 
under the authority of God's holy word and entertain the possibility that Bethany Bible Fellowship take a critical step in more fully aligning, aligning with what God has revealed for his people, his church. The passage we read this morning, it outlines the qualifications for leadership within the church. They are of tremendous importance. Those who are the leaders of the most important institution on the planet must meet very high qualifications. And notice that these qualifications, they're, they're mainly not about ability, are they? No, no. They're, they're, in fact, there's really only one ability that's mentioned here, and that's the ability to teach for elders. The rest of them all have to do with character qualities. So before uh, business experience, before marketing, before accounting, before event planning or construction skills, before degrees in sociology or counseling or the ability to problem solve or think creatively or, or even cast a vision, before all of that, leaders in the church They need to be Christ-like. That is the main qualification here. And so Paul lists off several different things. They need to be above reproach. They need to be the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, not a drunkard, gentle rather than violent, not a lover of money, not quarrelsome, dignified, not double-tongued, not greedy, etc., we have to take those things very seriously because God wor- God's word takes them very seriously. In fact, if members of our leadership are determined to have fallen in one of these areas, well, there's no question about it. We have to graciously but firmly ask them to step down, at least for a time. Yes, we could talk about restoration. Yes, we will apply the gospel. We'll want to bring that brother back to good standing with Christ and, and good standing with his church, but we cannot, we cannot ignore or let slide failures in character. We just we can't. Not if we take God's word seriously. Essentially, that's where this morning's passage takes us. But there's a problem. And the problem is, that before we can apply these things, we've got to first address the elephant in the room. The reality is, when we read this passage that we just read, we here at Bethany Bible Fellowship are immediately confronted with the realization that the biblical model for church leadership, it differs from our own. Someone might say, well, so what? Who cares? Is it really a big deal? As long as we're preaching the Bible and that all-important truth that you talked about, Jared, in 1 Timothy 1.15, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, as long as we're doing that, well, isn't that enough? Doesn't church government, church polity, isn't that just something that's kind of technical that doesn't really matter? It does matter. It absolutely matters. It matters because as the body of Christ, and in particular, this body, we take great pride that the word Bible is in our middle name. As a people of God, we believe that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete 
equipped for every good work. That's what we believe. All Scripture is breathed out by God, and therefore all Scripture needs to be taken seriously and applied to who we are and how we do life, how we do church. We don't have the luxury of picking and choosing which parts of the Bible that we like versus those that we would really care to do without. We don't have that liberty. We've got to take it all. We've got to work through it all. And we've got to humble ourselves under it all, don't we? Someone else might say, well, so, so Paul talks about church elders here in 1 Timothy. Uh, does that mean that every church needs to have elders? I mean, Paul doesn't say anything here about deacon-led churches needing to rethink their model. And you're absolutely right. He doesn't. He doesn't mention any of that for very good reason. That's because the New Testament gives us every reason to believe that there were no churches with a single pastor and a ruling board of deacons. It's just not there. It doesn't exist. To my knowledge, that's a phenomenon that showed up somewhere in America about 150 years ago, and I'm not even sure why. But I believe that was a mistake. Why is it a mistake? There are two reasons. There are actually a lot of reasons, but two that I want to highlight this morning, and that those are, one, because it's not in line with what the Bible teaches, and two, because it deprives the church of the wonderful blessings that being cared for by a biblically functioning elder board can bring. Now, what I would like to do in the time that we have left is to help us get our heads around a biblical framework, an organizational structure for church governance so that we might see how good it is and then begin praying about what the future of our church might look like. Let's take it from the top. If you look at the organizational chart for church leadership, where does the very top land? Well, it lands with Christ as the head. There is no one higher than Jesus Christ. Ephesians 5.23 tells us Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Colossians 1.17, and Christ, says, and he, and Christ is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. Then Ephesians 4.15, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined together and held together by every joint with which it's equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So the church, before everything else, is led by Jesus Christ. He's the one who started it. He bought it. He paid for it with his blood. He appointed apostles to write down and make known those fundamental truths, those foundational truths on which the church stands. We see that in Ephesians. He's even now building it, providing for it, interceding for it, and empowering it to continue to do his work here on earth. John Piper, he makes a crucial point when he says that the church is not merely an organization. He says the church is an organism. It's a divinely created and sustained and empowered 
organism. You know, there are a lot of people in the church that are out there in the world doing all sorts of different things, and a lot of them are in the business world. And there's all kinds of different organizational structures out there and things that church people are learning from the outside, and they're bringing that information and that skill set and that knowledge to the church. And that's not a bad thing. But we can never think that the church is merely an organization and never think that all of those strategies and all those tactics and all those techniques and all that knowledge base is enough to grow this church. No, the church is an organism. Piper's right. It's a divinely created and sustained organism, a living body with Christ as its head. So we need to make sure we never allow ourselves to drift into the thinking that regular human strategies, tactics, or whatever is going to be enough. We have to look to Christ first to our author- for our authority, for our direction, for our provision. Christ is the head. That's the first thing. Secondly, members, members of the church, they are priests and ministers. Have you memorized 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 10? That's one of those verses that kind of keeps me centered on who I am and what I'm supposed to be about. It says this, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Did you notice what it says about your position there? It says that you are a chosen race. And then he says you are a royal priesthood. It doesn't say that you're a chosen race with this group of priests that will go before you on your behalf and speak to God. No, it says you, men and women, you are the priests. Wow, you are the priests. Look at what Revelation 1.5 says. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. What did Christ do? He loved us. He freed us. He made us to a kingdom. And he made us priests. There's there's no mediator between you and God other than Jesus Christ himself. He's the, the one way, the one truth, and the one life. Once you've placed your trust in him, you and God the Father, you have a direct connection through him. That's what that, we read it last week in, in 1 Timothy 2, 5. There is one God. And there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. You are priests with a direct connection to God. It's incredible. Not only are you the members of the church priests, but you're also ministers. Did you know that? You're ministers. Churches have gotten in this bad habit of thinking that the pastor is the minister. And it's true. I do ministry. I do it all the time but not because it's my job. I do ministry because I'm a Christian, just like maybe you. Christians 
are ministers. 1 Peter 4, 10 through 11 tells us each one of us, every single one of us are ministers. 1 Peter, uh, or no, no, Ephesians 2, 10 tells us we've been created in Christ Jesus to do good works. That's ministry. When we were reborn in Christ, we were given gifts to use in service to one another so that the body of Christ might be built up and strengthened and grow. All of us. That includes all of us. It's not just the pastor who's called the minister here. If it was, then, well, the church wouldn't be going very far or doing very much of God's will in the world. You know, one guy can move a couple of stones, but a group of people, a team of people, a community of people can move mountains. That's the church. Everyone is a minister here. It's the job of the pastor to equip the saints for ministry. That's what Ephesians 4.12 tells us. So Christ is the head, the members are the priests and the ministers, they are the ones who are doing the ministry here. Next, it's important for us to notice that because Christ is the head and people have a direct connection with God through him, they don't need to have any other authority other than Christ stand between them and God. The local congregation holds that authority. There's God, there's Christ, and his word, and his spirit, and then there's the people of the church. Under Christ, you, the men and women who are members of this body, you have the final authority in matters of faith and life in this church. Does that mean that the congregation has to weigh in on every single decision that takes place here at Bethany? No, of course not. That would be absolutely ridiculous, wouldn't it? We wouldn't get anything done here. I think uh, the plants outside need a little bit more water. Okay, well, uh, let's call a congregational meeting. Or, uh, you know, the worship guy, he needs to buy some new guitar strings. Oh, well, we better get together and put that to a vote. No, that'd be crazy. It'd be insane. We wouldn't get to the things that God has called us to do. We wouldn't be out there ministering to our community. We wouldn't be preaching the gospel. We wouldn't be uh, giving of ourselves sacrificially. No, we'd just be in a room voting on every single little thing. No, congregationalism means that when it comes to where the buck stops in matters of faith and church life, it doesn't stop with the pastor. And it doesn't stop with the elders, it doesn't stop with the deacons, it doesn't stop with the bishop, it doesn't stop with the pope. No, the congregation is where it stops. The congregation makes those decisions. Matthew 18 gives us a beautiful example of this when it comes to church discipline. Church discipline is one of those church life matters. In Matthew 18, verse 4, Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone. By the way, credible wisdom there. We need, to, we need to pay very close attention to that. We need to follow that. I need to follow that more in my life. Then it says, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen, even to the church, well, then take it to the bishop and then take it to the pope. No, no, it doesn't say that. It says, if he refuses to listen, even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Jesus doesn't say 
that there is any other level other than the local church itself. That's where the matter is put to rest. The members of the church, they decide these matters, and that's where it ends. One pastor said, this is, this is the final court of appeals here. There's no other authoritative body that presides over them, only Jesus. That's it. So the congregation ultimately makes the decisions on who is in the church and who is out of the church. Which guy should be the pastor? Who should be the people who are entrusted to shepherd the body and make decisions on behalf of the body? And they need to be able to recognize the people that God is calling and affirm them for leadership. And just as important, they need to be able to hold them accountable. Someone says, well, isn't it great that we affirmed Alexander and and Hymenaeus is elders. Then another replies, oh yeah, by the way, did you know that uh, Alex is a drunkard? And Hymen, well, he's been teaching that you can be saved by works of the law. Ooh, we've got to do something about this. We, we need to investigate. We need to deliberate here. We need to be prepared to make a decision that is probably going to be fairly unpleasant here. This is, this is the realm of the church. The members of the church have the final authority under Christ when it comes to matters of faith and practice. And you might say, that sounds like a really big job. You're right. It is. It's tremendous responsibility. It's one of the reasons it's so important that you know your stuff. It's so important that you're in God's word, that you're studying it that you're coming to a knowledge of it, that you're staying in tune with what it says so you can faithfully execute your calling. And you need to be continually on your knees in prayer on behalf of the body, praying for your leaders that you've appointed and praying that the Lord use your little outpost, this little outpost in Christ's kingdom as a beacon of light to our community, shining bright the hope of Christ and developing fully devoted followers, mature followers of Jesus. The buck stops with you. There's Christ. There's the members who are priests and they are ministers and there's that authority that the congregation has. What about these leaders, though? What about these, these people that the church affirms? Essentially, there are two primary leadership categories within the church. There are the elders, and then there are the deacons. Now, this word deacon, diakonos, it basically means servant. There's not a great deal of Bible uh, tells us about what exactly deacons were responsible for, but it seems clear that they were enlisted to handle the day-to-day, -day, the physical, the logistical needs of the church, so as to free the other leaders up to focus on preaching and teaching and equipping and shepherding the church. We see that need arising in Acts chapter 6, verse 1. As the church was growing in size, the 12 apostles, they recognized, I can't, I can't, we can't handle the waiting on all of these tables and, and be preaching the word at the same time. And so they, they say, get seven men, seven qualified men, seven godly men to take on this very important task of waiting on tables, of taking care of the logistics here so that we may devote ourselves to prayer into the ministry of the word. This is crucial in the life of the church, and that's because physical needs matter. We're physical people. 
In churches today, the, the, those who serve in deacon roles, they may be taking care of day-to-day finances. They may be uh, dispersing money or other resources out as a sort of benevolence fund to help uh, people in the body or maybe even the community. Maybe they're overseeing the maintenance of the facilities or they're ushering or taking care of some other logistics. Maybe the Wi-Fi. Who knows? All the stuff that's necessary for the proper functioning of the church. It's crucial. And as you see the qualifications listed here in 1 Timothy 3, 8, 8 to 13, not just anyone could fill that role. This isn't it, just for any Tom, Dick, or Harry here. They need to be people of tremendous character and spiritual maturity. Deacons are a, cru- it's a crucial role. It's a privileged role. It's a, it's a role that should be honored, respected, held high. There's the deacons, then there's, there's the elders. Elders are distinct from the deacons, and they, they must be the, of the same moral and spiritual character, yes, but they must also be able to teach. In the Bible, the words, the words elder and bishop, bishop overseer, the same word, and pastor, all three of those terms, they're synonymous. They're synonymous, whereas our church essentially has one pastor, the early church always had multiple elders, overseers, pastors. Always multiple, never just one. The church in Jerusalem, Acts 15, 22, it says this, then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders, plural, with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch. The, the, church, in, the church in Ephesus, Acts 20, 17, now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. All the towns in Crete, Titus 1.5. This is why I, Paul, left you in Crete, that you may, might amend what was defective and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. James wrote to all the churches, all the 12 tribes in the dispersion, he wrote in James 5.14, is any among you sick? Let him call the elders of the church and let them pray over him, appointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Then all the churches in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, Peter wrote to them, 1 Peter 5.1, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the suffering of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be Revealed. Finally, all the churches Paul founded on his first missionary journey, presumably all the other journeys as well, Acts 14, 23. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. All over the New Testament, elders, not just one, but multiple, they were an essential part of every church. What was their role? First of all, elders care for the spiritual well-being of the body. Acts 20, 28, Paul says to the elders of the church in Ephesus, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all of the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. What an incredible task. There's nothing more precious than Christ's blood. Is is there anything more precious than what Christ's blood was spilled for? The church and the elders are to care 
for that flock. They're to oversee that flock. In 1 Peter 5, 1 through 2, Peter writes, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, we just read that, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed, he says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Shepherd them, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. These men were the primary leaders in the church, and they were responsible for caring for the body, for the believers. They were praying for them. They were ministering to them, walking with them through life's difficulties, pointing them to Christ, showing them Christ's truth in his word. They were shepherding, like a shepherd cares for the sheep in his flock. They care for the church. Elders care for the needs of the body. Elders also guard the truth. They're the guardians of truth. One pastor said, they are the wardens of the word of life. When Paul gives qualifications and instructions for the elders, he says uh, to the churches in Crete, he writes this, Titus 1.9, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. There we see that same ability to teach. They, they got to know this thing. They, they have to be able to, to listen to different people who are saying different things and interpret it through the lens of Scripture so as to say, wait a second here, I'm, I'm trying to get what you're saying here. Let me, let me see. Does this, do you think this lines up with such and such passage? And they're using now God's word faithfully to not only correct people, but point them to what is true, what is right. And so they guard the truth. By the way, that seems to be exactly the problem that they were having at this church in Ephesus. Some of the men in the leadership were straying from what, was, what the Bible says, and they were teaching bad ideas. That's why Alex and Hyman were ejected. Elders were doing their job. Elders, they guard the truth. They also govern the church. They govern the church. Now, someone might say, well, wait a second here. I thought you just said that there is no one over the congregation other than Christ, and that's true. Well, the congregation has the ultimate say on who is to be affirmed and who are to remain as elders. The elders are the one that the congregation relies on to faithfully teach them, to, to implement and direct them to the word of God, to spur them on to the mission to which God has called them. It's this beautiful, mutually beneficial relationship that God has designed. 1 Timothy 5.17 says, Let the elders who rule well, rule well, be considered worthy of a double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. That, that word rule has the idea of governing. The elders are the ones who are entrusted to make key decisions. What kind of key decisions? Like the color of the paint of the church building? Or how much the grass should be watered? Or 
who should be, who should, we should hire or fire to, to mow the lawn? No, 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 no. The, the, the things, the key decisions that the elders are working on here is where is the church going? What are we doing here? What, where should we be focusing our energy and our resources? Where should the money be spent? Where, where's the spiritual maturity of the congregation? And what might be the best ways to help them take their discipleship to the next level? Are there partnerships that are outside of the church that maybe we should form? Is our statement of faith, is it doctrinally faithful and yet speaking clearly to the culture around us, to the times we live in? Are there amendments that need to be made to our bylaws or to our constitution? Do we have an intentional model for reaching people with the gospel of Jesus and making disciples? And is it working? What are the classes? What are the books? What are the seminars that would be beneficial to help our congregation grow spiritually? They're shepherding the church. They're leading this thing. They're directing it so the whole body is being cared for and being built up as the people of God. Not just maintaining, not just getting by, not just continuing to exist, but flourishing as the people of God. Maybe, we're not talking monetarily here. That's, that's up to God to bless in that way. No, 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 spiritually. Is there being transformed? Is their mind being renewed by the word of God? The elders are concerning themselves with those things and they're praying for the people and they're meeting with them and they're coming alongside them, helping walk with them through life. These are monumental matters of importance and I argue far, far bigger than the leadership of one man. It takes a team. It takes a team of, uh, uh, to care for the, the spiritual life of the church a team that is shepherding, that is guarding the truth, that is governing. They need to be able to pass the ball around and look at the obstacles from different angles and work together to accomplish that mission. What, what they, say, they say there's no I in team. Such a cheesy statement. And yet it's true. We need a team. A church whose spiritual well-being is in the hands of only one man is not a church that is well off as a church that is being cared for by a team of godly men who have been affirmed for the task of shepherding the body, teaching the word of God, making ministry-minded, not business-minded, ministry-minded decisions. When I first began in youth ministry 23 or 24 years ago, I learned very, very quickly, there was no way I was going to be able to handle these 50 kids in one room by myself. They were insane. They were crazy. I, I talked for like five minutes, ran out of things to say, and it's like, all right, well, let's just jump up and down. Let's just, you can't do it. I realized that it was going to take a team. And so I had to begin nurturing, gathering, nurturing, building up a team of shepherds to care for those junior high students. I couldn't meet all their needs. I couldn't meet with them, each one of them throughout the week. And my personality and my gift set, as clumsy as I am and as unathletic as I am, I couldn't minister to every single one of these kids in the way that they needed to be ministered to. No, I needed a team of shepherds there. And if that was true in youth ministry, how much more when it comes 
to the ministry of the whole church. It takes a team. Paul is right when he says in 1 Timothy 3, 1, that this is a, a noble task. What an incredible thing. What an incredible privilege. What a weight of responsibility that elders have to minister to those who have been saved by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. But it's a big task, far beyond one person. I've served in churches where a board of elders acted far more like a board of trustees, handling just the business aspect of the church. They sat around on a table and they argued different business strategies and whatnot. I've experienced that. I've also served at a church where deacons oversee the practical and logistical aspects of the church and at the same time try to dabble in shepherding the congregation. And the Lord has worked in those churches. But let me tell you, I've never been a part of a church where the body was cared for more and where ministry was more thriving and the community more effectively reached than when this biblical model was fully embraced and followed to the letter. My friends, I believe that our church here, Bethany Bible Fellowship, has been tremendously blessed over the years. Faithful servants sacrificially have given themselves for the good of God's people. What what an incredible gift this church has had over the years. And yet at the same time, I think we've been missing out on the incredible blessing that can come from having a team of elders whose primary purpose is the shepherding and spiritual well-being of the people of God. I think we've been missing out. Our board of deacons, it's a team of godly, mature, qualified men who love you and have exhausted themselves trying not only to care for the practical and logistical needs of of running this church and two schools as well. They've done that. They've done that well. But just like the apostles realized in Acts chapter 6, it's too much. It's too much to carry all of that and the shepherding of the church. It's too much. I believe that there is an exciting, vibrant, fruitful, people-reaching, gospel-revitalizing, disciple-making, community-transforming future for Bethany. But critical to that reality is a church structure that lines up with what is biblical. Christ is the head. Members are priests and ministers congregation, the local congregation has the authority and leadership is provided by elders and supported by deacons. I want to challenge you. This isn't a decision that we take, we're going to take lightly here. We're going to give it some time. We're going to think through it. We're going to be careful in how we go about moving forward. But I want to invite you in the days and months ahead, study your Bibles, read good books, and pray. Pray for the Lord's leading and for a beautiful, vibrant future here at Bethany Bible Fellowship.